of Beckett's Babies, a playwriting podcast. Every week, we discuss plays we love, interview theater artists, and share our thoughts on playwriting and theater. We are your hosts, Sarah Cho. And Sam Collier. And on today's show, we will be looking at the work of Susan Laurie Parks as part of our Playwright of the Month series. Today, we'll be looking at her three plays, Venus, Top Dog, Underdog, and Father Comes Home from the Wars, parts one, two, and three. And big spoiler alert, we're going to be having <laughs> lots of spoilers in this show. So if you haven't read the plays, just stop listening right now and go read them and then come back and finish the episode. <laughs> or if you like being spoiled, I guess just keep listening. So um, brief intro about Susan Laurie Parks. She was named among Time Magazine's 100 Innovators for the Next Wave. She's the first African-American woman to receive the Pulitzer Prize in Drama, and she's a MacArthur Genius Award recipient. Her plays include, um, well, lots and lots of plays, but some of the top hits are the ones we'll be talking about, as well as In the Blood, The Death of the Last Black Man in the Whole Entire World, Imperceptible Mutabilities in the Third Kingdom, The America Play, and Fucking A. So, Sarah, um, let's just get started with first impressions of her style. As you think about all three of these plays, what mm. what connections do you see? Um, I'd say one big one for me uh, is like the rhythm, her consistency and the rhythm, like she has a certain way of writing the dialogue um, that's very specific. It just felt so specific to uh, her style. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> yeah. And and one of the things I think that I was really drawn to is just how uh, um, history and memory kind of, she just, the way she brings all that in um, to the storytelling. Yeah, that's so true. She is really interested in history. Yeah. Uh, and one thing I noticed all three plays is that she has her, which is, we could maybe get into later, but um, has this, like a page of her, like elements of style, like she's kind of giving you mm-hmm. the lowdown of how things to be read. And so it's like she's created her own, um, like, rule, not a rule book but her own language in a way that it's, but it's so easy to just dive in and it was so easy to follow, but it's like she has found her own, um, I don't know, rules or guides and um, language. Yeah, I know. And I, I keep coming back to this idea that um, she is kind of writing or using language in this very musical way. And it, mm-hmm. and I feel like the way um, she puts it on the page is almost like she's writing a score, like she's thinking about oh. the rhythm and mm-hmm. um, the way that, you know, where are their rests and where yeah. are their different um, kind of tones or different, I don't know, for lack of a better word, like melodies happening at the same time or overlapping or inter- interacting with each other. Um, she's able to find the music and the rhythm in speech in a way that I've never seen anybody else do. Mm-hmm. I love that you said her own music score. Like that's 
how like she sets it up in the first page of kind of like oh you know the rest and the pauses Mm -hmm. and like this is what it means and then so going in like having that basic understanding like I've I'm reading her music like this is and so I feel like you captured really perfectly what I was trying to say (laughs) (laughs) yeah and then another thing I noticed is that she really loves using a chorus Although mm-hmm. Top Dog Underdog doesn't have a chorus, but in both Venus, which is one of her earliest yeah. plays, and then Father mm-hmm. Comes Home from the Wars, there's this idea of a chorus of actors yeah. who um, play this kind of shifting role. And it feels very Greek. Yeah. Well, you say chorus. There was no chorus. But then if we're thinking of music terms, I think mm. Top Dog Underdog and the repetition of like, yeah like the the black card see the card red card you know that where the characters kind of have this mantra that they're saying over and over in the like that feels like a chorus to me yeah um but yeah all right so let's dive into venus uh written in or published in 1996 um yeah first what did we notice what did we – Well, something I had forgotten, yeah. and I've read this play a couple of times, but something I had forgotten about it was that the scenes are numbered in reverse order. Even though they yeah. are moving forward chronologically, they're counting down. Um, yeah. And I had forgotten about that, and it feels so significant mm-hmm, on this time mm-hmm. reading it that it's like counting down to her death in a way. Yeah. The counting down stressed me out. <laughs> Yeah, it's stressful. Not, like, yeah, not like, but it was it, it was creating this tension, and I'm like suspense that uh that I'm like it's counting mm-hmm. down to something really. I mean, I this was my third time reading it, and I kind of knew what was heading, but it's still the counting down this time. Um, like I was on the edge of my seat. <laughs> like, mm. like, I don't want to. Like I don't. I didn't want that moment to happen, knowing it was coming. Um. Yeah, it, this was Venus. The first time I read it, um, I thought it was a little too experimental. <laughs> Nineteen years old, you know. I was like, "This is a little too experimental for me." Like, I and don't... what did that mean to you? That word "experimental" when you were nineteen years old? Um, that one. Well, if I don't get it, it's experimental. <laughs> but, but I think what I was noticed, like. It wasn't your traditional, like conventional play, right? Like that, in a sense mm. of you know, like you know, three act structure, and then there's a beginning, and there's a sense of, of like, like constantly dialogue and talking, you know, like it's just. I, so mm-hmm. I was just thinking that I'm like, it, there was. I mean, now reading a third time around, like I got so much story. Than ever, I guess on my first time reading it, yeah, because I was like, now, like the devices that she was using, like I, I kind of, you know, growing up a little, you just kind of experience life a little bit more, and so you just kind of, <laughs> <laughs> you just kind of be more open to it, and then so I was, this time around, her, um, the devices and the the technical the technicality of the play. Like I started to appreciate, I actually appreciated and understand like what she was trying to do. Um, but yeah, like drawing in those 
there were moments of the on in the play where um she took like historical information mm-hmm. like straight up about <clears throat> um Venus and and that I don't know it made it more real like it made it real and kind of terrifying <laughs> that this was yeah yeah really happening uh, this happened um and the way that these you know spectators and how they were viewing this person as some like specimen like a science it is so scary and so painful and and i think you're right that there's something about um the that language the use of that kind of clinical Mm -hmm. um historical language that makes it so much more chilling yeah and haunting Mm -hmm. yeah and I, i had this weird moment by the end of the play where I, it was like this weird mirroring, like here, you know, here were these doctors, here were, she was this, um, you know, like quote unquote, a freak show, you know, like mm-hmm. being looked at and being, and then there were like spectators. And then I, as a reader spectating that, like this whole mm. thing, like I had this weird moment of like, yeah, that chilling mo feeling of, like this feels so wrong <laughs> or something like I Well, we're complicit. I mean, yeah, I've never seen yeah. a production of this, but and I I feel like I don't know. I don't know. I just feel like there aren't that many productions of this because of because it it makes the audience complicit in a really mm-hmm. pointed way. Um Yeah. And it, I I can't really imagine sitting in an audience and watching some of these scenes. Um yeah. Yeah. Because we're we're made to look at her having this experience in a way that we're kind of going on the ride with her, but we're also in some situations. I feel like mm. um, compounding or or kind of um, I don't know mimicking the mm. work that the other characters in the play are doing by looking at her you know yeah um yeah and that feels very theatrical yeah 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 and so it it not one you know there wasn't a a moment where i wasn't thinking like this isn't theatrical like it was right from beginning to the end i was like this is so theatrical Um, i had also forgotten how much humor there is like i remembered it mm. being a really painful play but um, she's just such a great writer of humor. So, like the moment I'm thinking of is when, um, uh, maybe like a third of the way into the play, um, Venus is asking for a raise, and she's like, "Look, I get, I'm the one who brings all the crowds here. Like your other, the other people in the show, mm-hmm. you know." The crowd comes to see me, not them. And then the mother showman says, oh, boy, a diva. <laughs> I don't know. There's just something about, like, yeah. the humor that's constantly asking us not to take this too seriously. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's what that's what allows me to keep reading. Yeah. Um, and, and I think if I were watching the show, that's 
like, I don't know, it's constantly reminding us like, yeah, this is a play and you're watching this in mm-hmm. our contemporary moment. And um, it's almost Brechtian in a way that's like using mm-hmm. contemporary language yeah. or um, t- having these little moments of humor, very like current present day humor to take us out of the historical moment and remind us that we're watching a play about this historical moment. Yeah. And I think that really, honestly, if if there wasn't any humor, it it would just be like like trauma porn. Like, yeah, I I, I really yeah. think the humor really makes it digestible and makes it really, um, really draws you in. Yeah. And, um, was there? What was it? Was this? Was there anything in the play that? you thought like I would like to put into my own writing. I really want to try using a chorus in the next play that I write mm. in a way that's not like, like I've written plays that have large casts and I've written plays where I double cast people. Yeah. But there's something so exciting to me about having a group of eight people that are just like, now they're this kind of character. Now they're this kind of character. And yeah. the, and they're, and like there are some scenes I write where I don't necessarily assign out all the lines because I could just let the director do that. Mm. Um, the possibilities mm. you have when you have a chorus. I mean, it's also like more expensive and probably never going to get produced. Yeah. But there's so much to play with there. Yeah. Um. What about you? Um, so, you know, the characters, she writes the characters, some of they don't have a line. Yes. They just, there's it's this just moment. like, mm-hmm. it's like a pause or, or I, I think the description was like, this is their full selves. And I, I just, it just kind of made me think of these moments of pauses and silences mm. um, a little bit more carefully. Um, what that means, because, you know, I literally write out like, Long silence, pause, beat, you know, mm-hmm. um, kind of in a way that are just throwing it out, you know, like kind of just putting it out there. Um, whereas Venus really, really all her plays, but here I just really felt like they're so, they were so intentional. Like they're, mm-hmm. um, and so that's just something that made me think about a little bit more. Is what There's so much room is. for the actors yeah. to make discoveries and, and and yeah, and I think there's something about like if she writes a character's name multiple times down the page, that's that feels like it has more weight mm. or more space than just writing, you know, pause, which yeah. only takes up a small amount of space on the page. Right, right. Um Yeah, I agree. I really love that. All right. Next play. Okay. Top dog underdog. Woo! Um, Moving right along. Yeah, so this was a 2002 Pulitzer Prize winning play for drama, um, and it is a two-person play. Um, and it's about these two brothers. Uh, something obviously traumatic thing happened to them, you know, in their history of them, but it's not something that, I don't know, was like leaning – heavenly on but it's these two brothers they're they're named um, lincoln and booth which like that in and of itself is traumatic to do that to your children 
Right. Um, and they're playing this card game. It's got three card Monty, I think that's mm-hmm. called. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. So what did we notice about this play? You know, it's interesting before we started recording that you said Susan Laurie Parks is up there with Sam Shepard for you. Because this, I feel like of the three plays we read, this one feels very Sam Shepard-esque to me because it's about these two brothers. And um, in a way, it feels like there's so much repetition in their play. Mm-hmm. Like they're treading mm-hmm. the same ground over and over again. But yeah. each time it goes a little deeper or we learn a little more. Um, yeah. But it, it and it feels of the three plays, this one feels like classic tragedy to me mm-hmm. um, that like at a certain point you realize that they're doomed mm-hmm. and maybe it's partly because of their names or maybe it's because they, you, you know, it's like there's this motif of this card game scam which can never be won but I just feel like I'm watching this train barreling down the tracks towards Mm. like the edge of a cliff and and I know they're doomed and and I'm just waiting to see how this like how is it gonna happen but I know they're gonna die somehow yeah so so interesting things they said about the name um especially because this is another play of like maybe it's not about a specific history, an event or anything, but the names Lincoln and Booth mm-hmm. is, has so much weight because we know who Lincoln and Booth is. Mm-hmm. So I kind of wondered if the names cuz I I kept comparing like how is this like Lincoln and Booth or something like that whether it be a power dynamic or like a move they're making or something it constantly made me think of Lincoln and Booth. <laughs> um, mm. But I that I think like that was just something interesting by picking those names. That yeah, yeah. That well, and it kind of feels it feels a little bit like this play is about our like I don't know, just like American society putting on like trying to wrestle with the fact that we've inherited this history. And mm. it, in a way, it has somehow already determined our future. I don't yeah. know if that's making sense, but you mentioned how she's so interested in history, and this play is like not really about Abraham Lincoln and John yeah. Wilkes Booth, no, but it's, it's kind no. of about how these two brothers are like their their lives are predetermined by their past somehow and like Mm -hmm. yeah yeah um i think end of scene one when they're talking about like the the origin of their names and like their father was drunk (laughs) Mm -hmm. um the lines were like yeah, he was drunk when he told me, or maybe I was drunk when he told me. Anyway, mm. he told me, maybe not be true, but he told me why he named us both Lincoln and Booth. And Booth says, how come? How come, man? And Lincoln says, it was his idea of a joke. And then mm. that's just how the scene ends. Um, which I feel like the the playwright is like nodding, kind of like, I get what you're saying. Like <laughs> the, the name's mm-hmm. kind of there, but like um, it's we're going to dig 
it's going to be a bit more than the, just the names. Um, uh, and yeah, these like, they both share, and this is where I was so curious about was like, they sh- obviously two brothers that shared something traumatic that happened to them. And maybe, and then before we started recording, I was like, did the parents leave? Like what happened to them? Um, we know that, uh, Booth slept with Lincoln's like girlfriend or wife. Cookie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Lincoln has lose, lost his job at some point during the play. Um, yeah, and his it, children. Like Lincoln slept with his father's mistress too, right? Like when he was a teenager. So I feel like there's just like this whole history of, I'm um, I don't know. Obviously trauma, but also kind of uh, like mixed up feelings. <laughs> you know right, what I mean? Right. Um. Yeah. Hmm. Um. What do you think you would borrow from this play in your own work? I think, yeah, I kept thinking about, um, how the characters are so affected by something, like their past or history, Mm -hmm. and how that really they they feel so motivated by something and whether it's the history of the path or something, but it was so clear to me the way they constantly were moving forward or like in the story, um, how they were, whether it's treating each other, there was these like little events that, that kept circling around to something bigger. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it just made me think a lot about, um, every move that a character makes, like how is that being formed, whether it be something larger than their world or, um, and what that means for their relationships. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but that's just something kept thinking about because yeah, (laughs) in, with these two brothers, I kept thinking, if if they had a stable job, if they lived a better life, you know, not in this current circumstances or mm. the parents didn't leave them, they had some stability, would they be, you know, mm. do different? You know, that's just like – so I kind of thinking about just intentionally the, the history and what that means and how it's – how that motivates who they are. Yeah. Well, but I was already from like the very beginning of the play mm-hmm. tracking um, Booth's relationship to his girlfriend and the way that – I mean, it it's kind of humorous the first time he's talking about like, you know, sh- he asks her her ring size and – yeah. She tells him it's seven and then he gets one that's six and a half and puts it, puts it on her finger so she can't take it off. And like it's kind of funny. Yeah. But it also has this 
sinister undercurrent where you're like, you know, like, I don't know. I felt like I don't quite know how to read that when I first encounter that in the play. And then, mm-hmm. and then it just gets progressively more and more alarming the way he talks about grace and, yeah. and that scene where he sets up the dinner table and he's like waiting for her to come over. And then Lincoln shows up and, and Booth is like, she said she was going to get here at eight. And Lincoln says it's after 2 a.m. And then I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. I've been like he whatever he thinks is happening with Grace is like wildly misguided. And we only have his side of events. Right. But there's this rift or gap between what I'm thinking Grace must be feeling and who she is and how she feels about Booth and what he like his version of events and then that moment at the right. end when he says he shot her, and, ju- and I'm just like, it, like I don't know, it's like my blood runs cold, and it's like, oh, wow, like Lincoln is not getting out of this room alive, you know? Um, and But but yeah. it's so skillful the way it starts off with the ring, mm. you know, which like in mm. hindsight is so alarming, but in the moment as I'm just – encountering the, these characters for the first time is like kind of funny mm-hmm. um i i just feel like she does yeah. such a good job at like <laughs> like planting these red flags mm-hmm. about booth yeah. and about this his relationship with his girlfriend so that you you like your gut knows this is not going to end well, but at least this is my experience. I shouldn't be saying you. Yeah. My gut knew this was not going to end well, and yet somehow I really wanted to be on Booth's side, and I wanted things to turn out okay for him. Um, yeah, I always got the sense in the entire play that I was like Booth is just unstable. Like he's like a yeah <laughs> a loose screw or something. Like I don't know. I can't anticipate what he's trying to do. Yeah. And that made it kind of scary. <laughs> but do you have – I mean, I think what's so fascinating about this play is I really have sympathy for him. Like, did you feel mm. like you had sympathy for him? I mean, I think equally for both, I felt. Equally for both. Yes, yes for sure. For sure. For them. Um, and I think it's just because they're brothers or speculated, but, like, they're brothers. They are – uh, in this point in time in their life, they're here and they're not in a good place, like neither of them. Yeah. Um. So it's seeing that and um. yeah, I and I know it wasn't going to end well, and I, but part of me was like, like Lincoln will be okay. <laughs> yeah. Booth will be okay too, though, you know, um, They'll both, you know, walk away separately and live a good life. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Yeah. Kind of like hoping I was – but, yeah, you say that it's a tragedy. So we all know tra- tragedies all end in hor- horrible – But there's something life. about the way he's, like, really wants so badly to be able to do this three-card Monty bit and he's – and we're watching him failing at it that just makes me, <sighs> like – 
want to watch him succeed. Like mm-hmm. I just want him to be good at it. And and she's so it's it is kind of Aristotelian because she's so good at setting up this moment where like he thinks he has bested Lincoln mm-hmm. and then and then it turns and actually he has lost the five hundred dollars. Yeah. Oof, what a good and, play. Yeah. And then in terms of like the these like subtle power moves mm-hmm. then it, even when like Lincoln is teaching Booth kind of like here's what you gotta do right mm-hmm. like there's this moment of like oh maybe this is this is where they'll really connect and brotherly love and <laughs> they'll just like I but know, I know. but there's this like tension and there's this this like frustration underneath all that um, but yeah Ooh, ooh. Um, what do you think top dog underdog means mm. I mean I guess I've just I've never really thought about it maybe I, I guess I've always thought about it like okay it's a two person play one person has the upper hand yeah but I don't think I ever really thought about it more than that like do you think one of the characters is the top dog and one is the underdog <sighs> yeah I think I think so i mean when we think of an underdog right is like they're starting from the bottom they're like gonna get out of it and they're mm-hmm. gonna prevail and win and stuff mm-hmm. but the whole time i was like well i felt like lincoln was the underdog and <laughs> never succeeded in any way um but lincoln is the one that's so good at the game yeah or the scam right. And I feel I don't know. Maybe they both personally think of themselves as the underdog. Mm. I don't know. And the play ends with yeah, right. So Booth shoots Lincoln, but like the 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 scream at the end, like the yelling, Mm. and the lights out. I was like, like I maybe because of the just like how the play took us, or where the journey of the play, but. Like that scream, that yell at the end, I was like, ooh, it felt mm. so painful and like powerful yeah. and scary and upsetting. And like it just felt – I felt all the emotions in that last moment. So I'm like as an audience member, I was watching this, scream, lights out. Like oh, I would I would just be like ringing my um, <laughs> my uh, program and like yeah. you know, clenching my teeth and I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think if you were to go see this play knowing nothing about it, mm-hmm. but just the characters' names, do you think yeah. you would be anticipating that Booth would shoot Lincoln by the end of the play? I think so. Or like someone's going to Certainly as soon like, as I we find out there's a gun. I'll know that for sure. Someone's going to die. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Right. Someone's going to die. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's so sad. She really has a lot to say about the Civil War, Susan Lori Marks. Yeah. Sure does. <laughs> it's like definitely a recurring theme in her work. Yep. So uh, Father Comes Home from the Wars, parts one, two, and three. Yeah. So I, I want to preface this conversation by saying two things. I saw a production of this at the Goodman a few years ago, and it was amazing. And also... So Susan Larry Parks did this project um, many years ago now in which she wrote a play every day for a year and they were like 
half a page or a page long, you know, short plays. And she has this recurring um, idea she's working with where many of the plays are called Father Comes Home from the Wars and it'll be like part one and then Father Comes Home from the War, part two, um, kind of throughout the year. And you mentioned the dog in this play and I was remembering that even in those very early versions of what this play became when it was just a kind of a kernel of an idea there are a couple things she was already working with one was this idea that the that the father comes home and like the wife isn't ready for him to come home and she's like having an affair or she's just not she's like forgotten about him or something Mm. but the other is that there's a dog already in those early versions of the play and so I was thinking about that but so she I think she did that project in like 2002 or 2003 and then this play was published in 2015 so I'm just fascinated by the long life of this project wow yeah so even though it was three parts Mm. it did feel like you know not three separate plays I don't know yeah I know middle and end um yeah like but and i have the tcg version but it it what it's like breaking up like it's three separate plays yeah it's, it, it says like end of play after each right, one right right mm-hmm. um just your general thoughts on that sam <laughs> my general thought so i saw it as the group of three when i saw the production and yeah. i and it felt like it was one play. Mm-hmm. But then when I was reading it, I was thinking, oh, I guess you could do, you know, if you were to do an evening of one act or something, you could do one of these as part of that yeah. evening and then yeah. have other plays, maybe by other playwrights. And I think either part one or part two could stand on its own. I'm not sure part three could stand on its own. Mm. Um Maybe yeah. just because I feel like I already know these characters and so I would expect that anybody would need to know these characters and I guess I could be wrong about that. But mm-hmm. it seems like part three really feels like an ending and yeah. I don't know if it would be satisfying to just see it by itself. Whereas like yeah. certainly part two, I think part two is my favorite one. Me too. Yeah. And I think that one would be really interesting to, as a standalone piece. Yeah, I was just thinking, now that you say that, like, if we, if I just saw part one and three and not two. Oh. That would be, like, an interesting kind of, like, a, what happened to Hero? Like, contrasting, like. Yeah. But, but kind of contrasting something there. Um, but, like, I was, like, thinking. So, part one, it was, like, the question of, will Hero go to war? Yes or mm-hmm. no? Right. Um, And we kind of get an understanding with the other characters, kind of like the, like how much importance he has. There's like a role for this um, group, like this family or this um, who's with. And then, and then to contrast the part three, which is like he just, the war has changed him. Yeah. Like, you know, and I just thought that would be, like, interesting. What if you produced it where 
people came and saw part one and then they came back a year and a half later and saw part three. Oh my gosh. <laughs> 20 years later. Or 20, 20 years, years later. later. With like, the Odyssey. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, um, that would be cool. Hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> Keep your pay stub. <laughs> Bring it with you. <laughs> We're going to stamp your story. hand and you can't wash your hand. You want to see what happens to <laughs> Oh, man. Um, but yeah, so after, so with reading Venus and Top Dog Underdog, father comes home from the wars. I think I really like saw like uh Susan Laurie Park's mastery in yeah. that part two. Like yeah. really in the part two, like really this meat of the of the three parts. Like I oh my gosh. My I mean oh it's so yeah. simple on its surface, and yet, yeah. the, and yet, it's so sophisticated. I just, yes. I think that's why I find that one particularly word, yeah. so satisfying. I mean, all three of them together. I remember watching it and just thinking, like, oh, I'm in the hands of a really, like, a master genius playwright because it it works on so many levels. Like, you have the surface level where it's just, as you said, it's the question of like, is he going to go to war? And like, in part two. You're kind of following at a surface level, um, like, I guess, the power shifts or the question of, like, are they going to get captured? But then underneath of that, there's all these other layers happening simultaneously, like a musical score. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, especially in part two. um, Gosh, there's – yeah, so – it's one of the things that I was really drawn to was Hero's loyalty to his mm. master, like what that means. Um, yeah. And, and like what, like what he knows, what the master doesn't know and like, you know, vice versa. And, and seeing how that kind of plays out and the final moment when he, there is a chance for him to run away and he mm. doesn't take it. He doesn't do it. I mean, yeah. like, I was just like, the, it. It really made me think of all these three plays. I think the major theme for me for all these three plays is this this idea of like false promises. Mm. Um, like Venus in the beginning, she's like, "Yeah, it'll just be two years. You just have to do this for two years, and then you'll come home rich." Mm. Uh, and like. Top dog, underdog is this like like there's circum something with their circumstances. Like it just like n- not how it was supposed to pan out or something. Mm-hmm. Like there's a sense of that. And then with father comes home from the wars where this promise of freedom and and not being given that freedom or like and or not taking it too or something. There's something all there that I'm like all three of them. Like that's the thing I kind of got pulled from, is that that the playwright is sort of like playing with this dramatic idea, what this means, and constantly. Yeah, and I'm so fascinated it. by that character yeah. of Hero and how he, in that scene with um, what's the Yankees name Smith? Mm, Smith, yeah. Um, 
where he's really wrestling with this question of like, okay, well, when we're free and we don't belong to a powerful yeah. white person, then they're like, what will protect us? Yeah. Um, like, and what's your worth? Which too? is like, what's your worth? And and I feel like she's anticipating her play White Noise, which we were going to talk about, but it's not published yet, you guys. But I really want to read that play when it gets <laughs> yeah, me published. Um, but she's really interested in this question of like, um, like if you're moving from one system of values to another, mm. well, at least Hero is kind of like – like what how are they going to survive in this new world um and and what is your worth if you like are going from this world of slavery to this world where you cuz there's that whole question about value like in dollars and just how mm. poisonous that whole idea is yeah. to somebody's like sense of humanity yeah but moving from like your value in dollars to your value to yourself or just you know I'm not doing a good job of articulating this but mm-hmm. I feel like she's but, really interested in exploring that question and then yeah and then she writes white noise and um in which is about people in the present day mm-hmm. who well and I don't I, I'm not sure I quite have the story, right? So I don't want to say it, but but I don't know. I'm just so interested in this question. Yeah, yeah um, what you're saying is also reminding me in the moment in Top Dog Underdog is, is yeah, how money is spent. Remember, there's a moment where they're like, okay, so $300 will go here, like $100 mm. goes to rent. Here's like they're, how the money's act allocated, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then and then there was another moment where Lincoln lo- loses his job and they give him like a week's pay. As and he just blows it off, mm-hmm. and like what, it, like to go from like very calculated allocating the money, what that means to survive, mm. versus yeah. not then losing the job, and like that his work self, like what is that the the value of his job is gone, and what does that even mean? So you know what, f this, I'm spending my money, and then at the end, how the brother ki- is killed over five hundred dollars, like that, so, right? So. In the same way with Venus, where like, yeah, she's promised money. She's gonna promise riches. Like that that's also something there too, with this, like what we're owed, what we our earnings, what does that mean for worth? And like, and I don't that is so like American. Like Yeah, it's so is, American and it's so connected to slavery. And all these yeah. characters are living in the in, uh, not even in the shadow because some of them it's for some of them it's contemporary but like um in this value system set up by the american slavery system in which people are right. people's worth is measured in dollars yeah mm. this also reminded me a thought that came across my mind while I was reading father comes home from the wars as this like comparison some slave owners had um, you know, like I have hundreds slaves of a thousand, like this mm. kind of attitude, which mm. kind of makes me think like every time I'm driving around and I see like big cars, like I always, because mm. that's something I just talk about with Nick a lot is this like this idea that like, oh, the bigger the car, the bigger the house, like mm. this is you, 
you're the, that's the American. And I just feel like there's something about today versus like early American history, like that attitude never really changed. Yeah. You know? That you're, that what you're worth is measured by what you own. Yeah. And it's just, it's, and it's like creepy and weird and that still translates in a mm-hmm. different way. I don't know. So mm-hmm. yeah. Um, whew, really three amazing plays. Um, yeah. Was there anything from this play, Father Comes Home from the War, that you felt like you would want to, Oh my gosh, there's just so much that's so brilliant. Like I remember reading and watching the first part where it's just this simple question, is he going to go or is he not going to go? But all of the characters have a personal stake in whether he goes. And she sets that up right from the first moment because the characters are Mm -hmm. betting, like at a surface level, they're betting things that they own on whether he leaves or not. But then they also have like a personal investment in whether he goes that goes beyond that like monetary or mm. physical value. And so this very simple question, like you know the play is going to be over when he makes a decision to go or not. Yeah. So it's it appears to be super simple, but all this other stuff is revealed as he's deciding whether or not to go. Um, right. And then and then there's that great moment when you find out, I mean, great and like heart shattering, when you find out like the depth of his betrayal, like you, mm-hmm. you find out that he was the one to cut off Homer's foot, but everyone can forgive him that because his life was in jeopardy. Mm-hmm. But then when you find out he betrayed Homer even before that by telling the what's the what do they call him like boss master boss yeah um where homer had gone and that's like the new piece of information that nobody else knew Mm. and that that's like a deeper betrayal than cutting off somebody's foot like you know it's like yeah one is like one is brutal on a physical level and one is brutal on an emotional level and the and the the latter is like the bigger betrayal and and also, I thought it was so interesting that that piece of information was revealed in, like, a drunken moment, just mm-hmm. like in Top Dog Underdog, the, as you were saying, the part about why they were given those names. The father revealed that in a drunken moment. Yeah. Um, anyway, what was your question? What would I borrow? I don't know. I think <laughs> I just feel like I have so much to learn from her about these reveals of information that happen in a way that's so grounded in who the characters are and what they want right. and doesn't feel like exposition because it no, it matters in the moment. Yeah. What about so, you? Oh, I have a question. So oh. at the end, the part in part three, like, so did you feel like Hero changed for the better like for worse like what by the end like what was your impression I feel like I wasn't thinking about it that way I was thinking about it like this is a person who has suffered so much and at a certain level everyone is just trying to survive in this in this unsurvivable situation yeah you know Penny's trying to survive Homer's trying to survive Hero's trying to survive. And so he found a new woman. And 
but I think what's so interesting is that he's, even though he has a new girlfriend, he's like unable to empathize with Penny finding a new boyfriend. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Right. Like he can't take on her perspective or understand why she would have right. done the same thing he did. Um, but I don't know if he's, mm. if that means he's worse than he was at the beginning because he's the same person who betrayed Homer. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I I don't, I don't know if I'm thinking about it as better or worse as I'm thinking about it. Like this is somebody who's just suffered a great deal and is um, just like in survival mode, like all of them. All of them. Yeah. Ooh. Do you, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think after, so after reading part two and then coming to part three, I just, it doesn't really make me just think about um, just wars in general, <laughs> like mm. how the, yeah. the experience of war. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't really have much more to say to that other than I, I just felt like at the end, it 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 really felt like like a really a tragedy again. Where it was like, I don't think everyone yeah. got what they wanted, um, despite what we've just experienced, what they've ex- all experienced. Um, yeah. So um, like no, for nobody's me, gonna be okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, nobody's yeah. gonna be okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, Wait, was do you think Venus was the history after the Civil War? Mm. Like after, like there's a date. Yeah, maybe I think it was like, yeah, it could be after because it felt like very. I feel like, but it's in England, right? I feel like it's early 1800s, but it's like after. Wait, where is it? Because the haunting taught Venus. Yeah. Mm. I wish I had this information written well, down. She, oh, like, yeah, she died in like 1815 or 1812 okay. or something. Yeah, so, so it's it early, early 1800s, so before the Civil War. Before yeah. Civil, okay, so, well, um, yeah, it just feels like she really, Susan Laurie Parks really, it's taking like a moment of history and just there's something like the, the consequential. It's very, all it feels all very consequential somehow. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. For me, for father comes home for the wars, what I would pull is like the dog talking which really <laughs> caught me off guard. But yeah. I, again, it's like intentional. There's a reason why the dog is talking like in terms of like getting this information, like really, adding this picture of who hero is like and like it's not like the dog wasn't came out of nowhere we knew from part one that the dog was gone like they're waiting for the dog so it was all set up somehow Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but like this that was like just an element of surprise that really took me off guard in like a delightful way now i'm like it's kind of this little humor right where you're like it's like added in just a little bit to kind of draw you in a little bit deeper to the play instead mm-hmm. of like pushing you away um so there's something bad of a talking dog 
<laughs> that I was like. And it adds so much suspense because right. like the dog has a lot to tell them, but because it's a dog, it's not going to give them a clear answer. <laughs> right, And exactly. so uh, it's so good at creating, like kind of drawing out the moment of, is he going to come back or is he not going to come? Is he dead or right. is he alive? And do you know the story in the Odyssey when Odysseus finally makes it home, like his dog is waiting for him? Did you know this? I don't know. This is in the Odyssey yeah. that like, so Odysseus, so he's fighting for 10 years in the Trojan War and then it takes him t- 10 years to come home. So he's like gone for 20 years. And when he arrives home, he's in disguise because he wants to find out if Penelope has been faithful to him, his wife. So he disguises himself. And so nobody recognizes him except his dog, who has been waiting for him for 20 years, recognizes him. And then once he sees that Odysseus has come home, then he dies on like a trash oh. heap. So she is kind of riffing on this story of the dog. Um, although this dog has a lot to tell us. <laughs> Unlike Argos, the dog of... Yeah, which, it, I mean, it elevated the plane as something more than just your regular old Civil War play. You know what I mean? Like, it's Yeah, just, yeah. So I was just like, yeah, it yeah, it just took me by surprise in a really fun, delightful way that I was like, oh, okay. Um, all right. Wow. These three plays, amazing. Uh, you know what the question I'm going to ask, right? And what are you going to ask, Sarah? <laughs> if each of these plays had a smell, what would the smell be? Well, my first answer is that I feel like all of them smell like sweat. But oh, wow. Maybe that's just cheating to do the same so- smell for all of them. So I'm going to assign the smell of sweat to Father Comes Home from the Wars because mm. I feel like they're just like sitting in the sun a lot. Mm-hmm. Um so, and like probably like haven't bathed much while they're at war. So like there's, yeah. I don't know. I just feel like there's like kind of unwashed clothes. So um, working backwards, top dog, underdog. I think for me, it's the smell of like, like a metallic smell. Like the Ooh. smell of cold metal. And then just because I'm thinking about the gun. And then for Venus, um, I don't know. I feel like I'm smelling like kind of a sickly sweet fake mm-hmm. flower perfume, like oh. like a perfume that's covering up a smell you don't want to smell. Yeah. Oh, those are good. Okay. Yeah. I can what smell about that you? Too. Um, yeah, I think – I'm kind of similar with for Venus, and I, I think because they were just eating chocolate a lot. <laughs> I was thinking mm. chocolate, that's sickly sweet, mm-hmm. but like, um, like, like chocolate that has like rum in it or something. Like that's mm. kind of what I was thinking yeah. of, and maybe there was a mention of that, but that's artificial what I was thinking. Artificial flavoring or something. Artificial flavoring, yes. Okay, yeah, something like that. Um, top dog, underdog was like <laughs> it made me think of um uh like cardboard boxes like when you open it and you're like that's there's like a like a weird stink but like it's also like paper mm. <laughs> so it's like that's the smell I got um and then the father comes home from the wars oh gosh 
I just I was just thinking like smoke. Just a lot of smoke. Smoke. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. Like like I don't know, like gun smoke or cannon smoke or like yeah. tobacco smoke. What kind of just smoke? Like, yeah. Um well I guess the smoke I was campfire. thinking was fire. Yeah, like campfire smoke. Like mm. um it just and then the clothes it's on you. <laughs> you're like when you come inside and you're like, Oh, this the smoke is still on me. Mm-hmm. Something like that. So that's the smell I was associating, but ah, three interesting smells. <laughs> All right, listeners, if you haven't read these plays, hop to it. Yeah. Which one should they read first, Sarah? Oh, I think they should read Venus. Yeah. Yeah. Venus. Do the same order that we did and then listen to this episode again. Okay. Good <laughs> advice. You Good should advice. take that advice, people. All right. Glistens. Um, you go first. Okay. Um, my glisten is uh so I signed up. Oh God, this is gonna be so embarrassing. Um, I signed up for Discovery Plus. Why is that embarrassing? Um, because I just feel like our listeners think that I'm probably like addicted to TV and I I just signed up for Discovery Plus. $6.99 ads um, free version. Um, would they be right if they thought that? I don't know, maybe. Um <laughs> and I watched because I'm a huge fan of Chip and Joanne. It was this couple on HGTV. They were on HGTV on a show called Fixer Upper. It was one of my favorite HGTV shows until they left and like took a hiatus. And then they came back, created their own network called Magnolia Network, which is could only be on Discovery uh, streaming service. And then like I missed them and I wanted to see them. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Nick hates that how much I love Chip and Joanne. He hates them like passionate. Um, but I love them. <laughs> so Chip and Joanne, I guess that's my lesson is like, it's Chip and Joanne. Who are these people? Chip and Joanne. How could you not know Chip and Joanne? Um, it's this. It says a married couple. They live in Waco, Texas, which is I. Okay, so I don't want to get into deep into it, but yeah, they live in Waco, Texas, Waco, Texas, and they just like take it old, rundown houses or buildings and like re, you know revitalize and remodel oh. them and make them really pretty and nice and. Um, but they basically in Waco, Texas, they have, they created their, their own. <sighs> Nick says that, what is it about Waco, Texas that draws cult followers? <laughs> <and cults? laughs> because basically he thinks of Chip and Joanne as like cult, like a cult, the, 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 this like, this like a uh, empire that they've created. Um, and they basically create like a Disneyland of their show in a way, where there's wow. like, shops and like coffee shops and and bed and breakfast bread and breakfast uh, inns that you could stay at. That they, you know, I'm like always telling like, oh, I really want to go to Waco, Texas. And he's like, you know who else went to Waco, Texas? These cult followers. You're just basically a oh cult. Oh my gosh. Um, but I love that. I just think they they just like make things pretty. So. <laughs> Oh, I don't know. I think I feel like there's something there. I don't know why, but a story or a play or something. But anyways, 
your turn. Cool. All right. Well, my glisten is just um, peaches. Um, turns out Colorado has really good peaches, and the farmers market people told me this would be the last week that they had them. So oh, I've wow. just been like eating so many peaches every day to, you know, make the most of them. And also, I started doing this last year. Um, if you freeze them, you can just drop peaches in boiling water for one minute and then put them in ice water and then the skins just come right off. They just slide off. And then you can slice them up and toss the slices in lemon juice and then freeze them. And then you can have really delicious peaches to put in smoothies all winter. So that's what I'm going to be doing. Wait, so you get peaches... And you boil them in water first, or do you yeah, just them? for a minute. You just you just or put minute. fresh peaches, whole fresh whole peaches in boiling water just for a minute, and uh-huh. then ice water, um, just to it does two things. It makes it easy to slide the skins off, but it also stops them from ripening. So that because mm. if you just like you could just slice them up and put them right in the freezer without boiling them, but the enzymes would keep. Um, digesting ripening oh, them so they uh-huh. wouldn't be as flavorful like oh, two months from now oh, wow. so the boiling just stops those enzymes yeah you can do that with corn too to freeze wow corn. listeners are you hearing this are you learning <laughs> something today that's my goal. I just want to help people learn how to preserve their fruits and vegetables. I learned a lot. Oh, so did I. I learned a lot about Waco, Texas. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. Please read the plays. And and if you have a playwright you would like to suggest to us. Ooh, yes. Um based on the way things are going it probably should be somebody who has won the pulitzer prize <laughs> at least like once at twice. least once <laughs> three times the charm but yeah looking for people who like have a big body of work so we can read you know an early play and a pulitzer prize play and then a recent play <laughs> or just like yeah mid <laughs> mid-career play whatever you like to call it and the recent play so uh yes yeah love suggestions love thoughts Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Beckett's Babies. If you enjoyed what you heard or learned a thing or two about playwriting, be sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast with your friends. And if you'd like to reach out and share with us your thoughts on playwriting and theater or maybe be a guest on the show, uh, be sure to visit our website at www.beckettsbabies.com. That's www.beckettsbabies.com. And you can contact us there. Thanks for listening.